Chapter Two of Colonel Quaritch, V.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Colonel Quaritch, V.C. by H. Ryder Haggart. Chapter Two: The Colonel Meets the Squire. Suddenly, as Colonel Quaritch was contemplating these various views and reflecting that on the whole he had done well to come and live at Honham Cottage he was startled by a loud voice saluting him from about twenty yards distance with such a peculiar vigour that he fairly jumped colonel quaritch i believe said or rather shouted the voice from somewhere down the drive yes answered the colonel mildly here i am ah i thought it was you always tell a military man you know excuse me but i am resting for a minute this last pull is an uncommonly stiff one I always used to tell my dear old friend Mrs. Massey that she ought to have the hill cut away a bit just here. Well, here goes for it. And after a few heavy steps, the visitor emerged from the shadow of the trees into the sunset light, which was playing on the terrace before the house. Colonel Quaritch glanced up curiously to see who the owner of the great voice might be, and his eyes lit upon as fine a specimen of humanity as he had seen for a long while the man was old as his white hair showed seventy perhaps but that was the only sign of decay about him he was a splendid man broad and thick and strong with a keen quick eye and a face sharply chiselled and clean-shaved of the stamp which in novels is generally known as aristocratic a face that in fact showed both birth and breeding indeed as clothed in loose tweed garments and a gigantic pair of top-boots his visitor stood there leaning on his long stick and resting himself after breasting the hill harold quaritch thought to himself that he had never seen a more perfect specimen of the typical english country gentleman as the english country gentleman used to be how do you do sir how do you do my name is de la mole my man george who knows everybody's business except his own told me that you had arrived here so i thought that i would walk around and do myself the honour of making your acquaintance this is very kind of you said the colonel not at all if you only knew how uncommonly dull it is down here you would not say that the place isn't what it used to be when i was a boy there are plenty of rich people about but they are not the same stamp of people it isn't what it used to be in more ways than one and the old squire gave something like a sigh and thoughtfully removed his white hat out of which a dinner napkin and two pocket handkerchiefs fell to the ground in a fashion that reminded colonel quaritch of the climax of a conjuring trick you have dropped something some linen he said stooping down to pick the mysterious articles up oh yes thank you answered his visitor i find the sun a little hot at this time of the year there is nothing like a few handkerchiefs or a towel to keep it off and he rolled the mass of napery into a ball and cramming it back into the crown replaced the hat on his head in such a fashion that about eight inches of white napkin hung down behind you must have felt it in egypt he went on the sun i mean it's a bad climate that egypt as i have good reason to know and he pointed again to his white hat which as harold quaritch now observed for the first time was encircled by a broad black band ah i see he said i suppose that you have had a loss yes sir a very heavy loss now colonel quaritch had never heard that de la mole had more than one child ida de la mole the young lady whose face had remained so strongly fixed in his memory, although he had scarcely spoken to her on that one occasion five long years ago. Could it be possible that she had died in Egypt? 
the idea sent a tremor of fear through him though of course there was no real reason why it should deaths are so common not miss de la mole he said nervously adding i had the pleasure of seeing her once a good many years ago when i was stopping here for a few days with my aunt oh no not ida she is alive and well thank god her brother james he went all through that wretched war which we owe to mr gladstone as i say though i don't know what your politics are and then caught a fever or as i think got touched by the sun and died on his way home poor boy he was a fine fellow colonel Corch, and my only son but very reckless only a month or so before he died i wrote to him to be careful always to put a towel in his helmet and he answered in that flippant sort of way that he had that he was not going to turn himself into a dirty clothes-bag and that he rather liked the heat than otherwise well he's gone poor fellow in the service of his country like many of his ancestors before him and there's an end of him and again the old man sighed heavily this time and now colonel Corch, he went on shaking off his oppression with a curious rapidity that was characteristic of him what do you say to coming up to the castle for your dinner you must be in a mess here and i expect that old mrs jobson whom my man george tells me you have got to look after you will be glad enough to be rid of you for to-night what do you say take the place as you find it you know i know that there is a leg of mutton for dinner if there is nothing else because instead of minding his own business i saw george going off to boisingham to fetch it this morning at least that is what he said he was going for just an excuse to gossip and idle i fancy well really said the colonel you are very kind but i don't think that my dress clothes are unpacked yet dress clothes oh never mind your dress clothes ida will excuse you i dare say besides you have no time to dress by jove it's nearly seven o'clock we must be off if you are coming the colonel hesitated he had intended to dine at home and being a methodical-minded man did not like altering his plans also he was like most old military men very punctilious about his dress and personal appearance and objected to going out to dinner in a shooting-coat but all this notwithstanding a feeling that he did not quite understand and that it would have puzzled an american novelist to analyze something between restlessness and curiosity with a dash of magnetic attraction thrown in got the better of his scruples and he went well thank you he said if you are sure that miss de la mole will not mind i will come just allow me to tell mrs jobson that's right hollowed the squire after him i'll meet you at the back of the house we had better go through the fields by the time that the colonel having informed his housekeeper that he should not want any dinner and hastily brushed his not too luxuriant locks had reached the garden that lay behind the house the old gentleman was nowhere to be seen presently however a loud hello from the top of the tumulus-like hill announced his whereabouts wondering what the old gentleman could be doing up there harold quaritch walked up the steps that led to the summit of the mound and found him standing at the entrance of the mushroom-shaped summer-house contemplating the view there colonel he said there's a perfect view for you talk about scotland and the alps give me a view of the valley of l from the top of dead man's mount on an autumn evening i never want to see anything finer i have always loved it from a boy and always shall so long as i live look at those oaks too there are no such trees in the country that i know of the old lady your aunt was wonderfully fond of them i hope he went on in a tone of anxiety i hope that you don't mean to cut any of them down oh no said the colonel i should never think of such a thing 
That's right. Never cut down a good tree if you can help it. I am sorry to say, however, he added after a pause, that I have been forced to cut down a good many myself. Queer place, this, isn't it? He continued, dropping the subject of the trees, which was evidently a painful one to him. Dead Man's Mount is what the people here call it, and that is what they call it at the time of the conquest, as I can prove to you from ancient writings. I always believed that it was a tumulus, but of late years a lot of these clever people have been taking their oath that it is an ancient British dwelling, as though ancient Britons, or anyone else for that matter, could live in a kind of drain-hole. But they got on the soft side of your old aunt, who, by the way, begging your pardon, was a wonderfully obstinate lady, when once she got an idea into her head. And so she set to work and built the slate mushroom over it, and one way or another it cost her two hundred and fifty pounds. Dear me, I shall never forget her face when she saw the bill. And the old gentleman burst out in a titanic laugh, such as Harold Quaritch had not heard for many a long day. Yes, he answered, it is a queer spot. I think that I must have a dig at it one day. By Jove, said the squire, I never thought of that. It would be worth doing. Hello, it is twenty minutes past seven, and we dine at half past. I shall catch it from Ida. Come on, Colonel Quaritch. You don't know what it is to have a daughter. A daughter, when one is late for dinner, is a serious thing for a man. And he started off down the hill in a hurry. Very soon, however, he seemed to forget the terrors in store, and strolled along, stopping now and again to admire some particular oak or view, chatting all the while in a discursive manner, which, though it was somewhat aimless, was by no means without its charm. He was a capital companion for a silent man like Harold Quaritch, who liked to hear other people talk, though some people found him a somewhat tiresome one. In this way they got down the slope, and, passing through a couple of wheat-fields, came to a succession of broad meadows, somewhat sparsely timbered, through which the footpath ran right up to the grim gateway of the ancient castle, which now loomed before them, outlined in red lines of fire against the ruddy background of the sunset sky. "'Aye, it's a fine old place, Colonel, isn't it?' said the squire, catching the exclamation of admiration that broke from his companion's lips, as a sudden turn brought them into line with the Norman ruin. "'History, that's what it is. History in stone and mortar. This is historic ground, every inch of it. Those old de la Moles, my ancestors, and the boisers before them were great folk in their day, and they kept up their position well. I will take you to see their tombs in the church yonder on Sunday.' I always hope to be buried beside them, but I can't manage it now because of the act. However, I mean to get as near to them as I can. I have a fancy for the companionship of those old barons, though I expect they were a roguish set in their lifetime. Look how squarely those towers stand out against the sky. They always remind me of the men who built them, sturdy, overbearing fellows, setting their shoulders against the sea of circumstances and caring neither for men nor devil, till the priests got hold of them at last. Well, God rest them. They helped to make England, whatever their faults. Queer place to choose for a castle, though. Wasn't it? Right out in an open plain. I suppose that they trusted to their moat and walls, and the hagger at the bottom of the dry ditch, said the colonel. You see, there is no eminence from which they could be commanded, and their archers could sweep all the plain from the battlements. "'Ah, uh, yes, of course they could. It is easy to see that you are a soldier. They were no fools, those old crusaders. My word, we must be getting on. 
They are hauling down the Union Jack on the West Tower. I always have it hauled down at sunset. And he began walking briskly again. In another three minutes they had crossed a narrow by-road, and were passing up the ancient drive that led to the castle gates. It was not much of a drive, but there were still some half-dozen of old pollard oaks that had no doubt stood there before the first Boise, from whose family centuries ago the de la Moles had obtained the property by marriage with the heiress, had got his charts and cut the first sod of his moat. Right before them was the gateway of the castle, flanked by two great towers, and that, with the exception of some ruins, was, as a matter of fact, all that remained of the ancient building, which had been effectually demolished in the time of Cromwell. The space within, where the keep had once stood, was now laid out as a flower-garden, while the house, which was of an unpretentious nature, and built in the Jacobean style, occupied the south side of the square, and was placed with the back to the moat. "'You see, I have practically rebuilt those two towers,' said the squire, pausing underneath the Norman archway. "'If I had not done it,' he added apologetically, "'they would have been in ruins by now. But it cost a pretty penny, I can tell you. Nobody knows what stuff that old flint masonry is to deal with till he tries it. Well, it will stand now for many a long day. And here we are.' And he pushed open a porch door, and then passed through a passage into a kind of oak-panelled vestibule, which was hung with tapestry, originally taken, no doubt, from the old castle, and decorated with coats of armour, spearheads, and ancient swords. And here it was that Harold Quaritch once more beheld the face that had haunted his memory for so many months. End of chapter 2